Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. Today on the detail, universities are in trouble. Several hundred jobs are on the chopping block. We have a $60 million budget hole. Why can't you just fix it? Slashing jobs as student numbers plunge. Victoria University of Wellington is going to cut 230 to 260 jobs after forecasting a $33 million deficit. It's shocking news for the staff here at Vic as it is down in Otago. Otago University is looking at making hundreds of staff redundant to help reduce its annual operating budget by $60 million. Otago, Victoria, Waikato... Massey, AUT, the list goes on. What we're risking here is the the standard of our public education sector. We're talking about shortfalls of tens of millions of dollars. So if the government won't stump up with more money and regulations restrict universities to small student fee increases, will the universities have to push harder for private money? We've got a heck of a long way to go. Victoria University's endowment is $85 million. Top of the pile, Harvard's $80 billion. And it won't just need a change of attitude, but a change of law. In New Zealand, there is no definition of gift in the Income Tax Act. We don't have a clear definition of what constitutes a gift for the purposes of tax deductibility. We'll look at the role of philanthropy in the funding formula, but first, let's look at why universities just can't balance their books. Victoria Uni Vice-Chancellor Nick Smith took on the role in late January, and here's what hit him on day two of the job. The enrolment situation at uh, the university meant that our deficit was going to be bigger and we were going to have to do things more quickly than anyone would want to to address it. Particularly the domestic enrolments in the university have been declining for uh, about four years now. Um, And then this year we had a 12% drop in enrolment. But that 12% is a really confronting number. Um, And in a business which is largely people and people costs, it's confronting in terms of where we're going to find the savings uh, to match our income and ultimately to be sustainable, which we haven't really been for the last seven years. Why is Victoria copying it worse than other universities? Um, I think probably a number of universities in New Zealand are on similar trajectories. Um, we've seen the news from Otago. Um, this is something that, that we're now dealing with. it. But other universities probably for the last three years have been dealing with it in different ways. There are a few reasons particular to us. There's a sense that the really buoyant economy and the, the jobs uh, available in Wellington are even more buoyant than everywhere else in the country and we tend to be a bit counter-cyclical. So if there's plenty of jobs, the student numbers fall because there's lots of work yes, for young people. exactly. Uh-huh. Um, and um, people seek to, to study and to reskill and develop their talents in times when employment's more difficult. But I think also the university was in a, a more significant debt situation than other institutions. Um, we are largely a uh, humanities uh, institution, and humanities across New Zealand have had less funding and less funding increases for some time. And in many senses, I think that's a huge tragedy, but it means that because the government has funded the sector at about half the rate of inflation for over a decade, that squeeze comes into institutions such as ours uh, a little more quickly than others. 
Can we do a bit of a breakdown of where the money comes from for, for a university and look at Victoria in particular? I mean, what are the sources here? You get from the government, you get a per student amount. Yes, we have an amount per student. We have an amount which are student fees, which are provided by the students themselves. We have an amount provided by international students and uh, is unregulated, so we can universities can charge international students what they think meets a market. Um, we have a little bit of philanthropy and we have research income, some of which is from government sources and some of which is from industry sources. But what that collectively means is that about 80% of our funding comes from the government and that 80% is regulated in terms of what is provided for what we need to deliver. And again, that hasn't been indexed with the cost of living um, for quite a long time now. So what you get from the government per student hasn't increased in line with other cost increases? Yeah. So you, know, you take the last decade, it's been on for longer than this, but in the last decade... CPI has increased by 34%, and yet the average student funding has only increased by 16%. So that's uh, an 18% gap. So something's not working here, Nick. Your student numbers have dropped, but also government funding hasn't increased over time enough for you to cover all your costs. No, no. And, you know, that squeeze has been buffered for some of that time by international student recruitment, which all universities do. But I think it was Warren Buffett who said that you don't know who's swimming naked until the tide goes out. And COVID um, was the process of the tide going out for many institutions. Universities are wielding massive cuts to tutoring and casual lecturing jobs. This is on top of the 700 permanent jobs uh, universities are shedding to cope with the loss of foreign student fees. What you're saying there is that with COVID, universities here were exposed. Yes. Their dependence on, on overseas students yes. to sort of prop them up. Yeah, and that propping up has been happening for a long time, but they were absolutely exposed because the international students could no longer come. But I don't think having a, a high-quality university system seeking to serve Aotearoa New Zealand in the long term, especially given the geopolitical risks that we face now, is a good model to be buffered by international students coming in and paying their way um, to subsidise our domestic operations. But the Tertiary Education Union President Julie Douglas says there has obviously been issues for some years that have not been addressed and that's that's not been addressed by the university management and certainly not been addressed by the government. At a time when you're cutting, costs are, are really dropping in real terms and actually universities are also being asked to do more, whether that's responding to COVID or teach in different environments or um, deliver important courses for equity and diversity reasons. Asking an institution to do more while it's being systemically funded less produces pressures and cracks that are going to expose decisions, which in retrospect might have been different. But I, I, I think it's that's the predominant driver. I look across the management of institutions in Australasia. I've worked in five different universities, and I think the both the staff and also the leadership are absolutely committed. They're competent, and they're really seeking to do the best, not just for their institutions, but for the students who... Um, come and participate in them in the country as a whole that we serve. You're competing not only within the country for students but outside of of New Zealand for students and 
I just wonder how difficult it makes it when you're in the headlines for these stories about a, a huge deficit. You're having to slash your staff and you're having to, to cut your courses. Yeah, I mean, if you look at, I think, a situation where New Zealanders are looking overseas because they see quality institutions overseas is not a good thing for the country as a whole because you lose that capacity of university to respond to what's important for New Zealand. And there are many, many examples that I could talk about. Um, I, I was recently at a talk with one of the PhD students who was looking at how you diagnose Kyrie dieback early. That's only going to happen in New Zealand institution and treaty settlements, mental health. They're all specific to a New Zealand institution working on New Zealand problems. So it's not a good situation where we are, our talented young people are looking overseas um, for the answers in that space. But to your second point, being in the media of what this is and slashing staff, I have no doubt that the university will come out of this process probably a little bit smaller, focused around distinct strengths, but ultimately positioned to successfully deliver the things that we think we can really make a difference for in New Zealand. But it's really unfortunate that we've had to go through this particular process uh, far quicker than I think is constructive because of the funding situation that we've inherited. What is the solution here? Are you going to have to change your funding model? I mean, you know, Chris Hipkins was, you would have seen, was in Otago the other day, uh, and his message was... The universities make their own decisions about how they manage their finances, so it's not something that we can intervene with. Uh, it's pretty clear message that there's no more money coming from the government, isn't it? Yeah, that's certainly been their consistent message. Um, but I think the autonomy argument which he was making is a little bit superficial. Uh, it's, it, people only have autonomy when they actually have the resource to invest in the decisions that they think are important. And where there is not the resource to invest in what's important, actually you have no autonomy, whatever your governance structures say. So, you know, what I hope is that as we go through this current set of challenges, and it's not unique to, to my university, we can actually have a national conversation around what it is that we think is important for Aotearoa, for our young people, for our education and our research. And we can actually look at the costs for delivering that from the ground up, not from some indexed figure that was is 15 years old, and then agree that that is what we need to do to produce that. Have you got a figure of how much that per student amount needs to rise by? Well, if we had funded uh, student fees in line with inflation over the 15 years, we would not have a deficit. Um, if we had f funded humanities uh, at the same rate of increase of other areas, our deficit would be 3 or $4 million. So... Rather than saying I have a particular figure, what I would like is a, is a fair and open process that can put universities into a sustainable financial future so they can do the big, difficult, important things that have under, underpins many societies, not only ours and Aotearoa. Speaking of the big, difficult, important things, Vic University's Institute of Governance and Policy Studies had secure funding for roughly 10 years, thanks to a $10 million grant from Grant and Marilyn Nelson through their Gamma Foundation. That support is gone after disagreements over how the money was being spent, and the Nelsons have shifted their money to more specific funds. 
It shows just how difficult it is to secure private money, keep the donors happy and maintain academic freedom. So, is the Institute doomed? Well, here's the former Director Emeritus Professor Jonathan Boston. Well, it's, it's in abeyance. Whether it's resurrected or a new institute is established to do the sorts of things that the IPS and the IGPS previously undertook, whether that happens is over to the university to decide. But it would be remarkable, in my view, if a capital city university like Victoria University did not have uh, an institute of policy studies or an institute for governance and policy studies. Bear in mind, Auckland University has two such institutes at the moment and is about to create a third. So for Victoria to have none would be extraordinary. And I recognise that there are some dedicated chairs and there are other research institutes, but none of them have a broad responsibility and mandate to undertake policy-oriented research in the wide fields of economic, social, environmental and cultural policy. But realistically, Sharon, if the university were to either resurrect the institute or establish a new institute, it would need to find um, external research funding to support that initiative. And how much would that need to be? Millions? Well, in in terms of an operating budget, to have a a fully-fledged institute uh, that has the capacity to do the sorts of things that the IPS slash IGPS have done over 40 years, you really need a budget of close to a million dollars a year, ideally more, you can work that out if you if you needed a million dollars you would need an endowment of a minimum of 10 million ideally more than that uh, or you'd need research grants and other sources of funding to provide for that and the problem is that um, it's it, research funding in New Zealand with the exception of the performance race research fund is mostly short term three years five years grants and so on and it's very difficult to employ dedicated high quality researchers uh, uh, when you've only got soft money. Now, you can do it in some areas like healthcare because there's, some, there's such a large volume of research funding. But in, in the social sciences, it's much more difficult. But let's have a closer look at the endowments. Remember, Victoria Universities is 85 million, Auckland Universities, 300 million, Melbourne University, 1.5 billion, Oxford, 13 billion. Harvard has the biggest endowment at over $80 billion. And here's how they work. So universities create foundations which then seek donations from alumni, former students, and from you know, potentially wealthy benefactors, and they seek to create a pool of funding uh, that can be used to support the the general purposes of a university. The problem in New Zealand, and I think this is a really critical point for listeners to understand, is that we haven't had a strong philanthropic tradition. Wealthy New Zealanders have not traditionally given large sums of money to uh, universities. The endowment from the Gamma Foundation of $10 million in the period 2012-2015 was at that stage the largest endowment or gift that Victoria University had received, and certainly one of the largest any university had received ever. But while that was you know, a very generous gift, it, by international standards, it, it, it was relatively trivial, if you don't mind me saying. You say that there's no tradition of it here. Yes. But we know that there are a lot of wealthy people in New Zealand. Yes. So what's the problem here? Right. Well, uh, I, I think that there's a cultural issue that New Zealanders, although willing to give for some charitable purposes, have not been so willing to give for other 
purposes such as education and, and research. Secondly, all our universities are public universities and there is a general probably inclination on the part of at least some people uh, to think that, well, because they're public universities and they're funded largely from the public purse, well, they don't need private money. But that's not to say that people don't give in New Zealand. For example, Auckland University had a relatively successful fundraising campaign between 2017 and 2019. And over those three years, they raised close to $400 million from philanthropic uh, giving. And in terms of the philanthropy and the philanthropists. It's not a no-strings-attached arrangement, is it? Well, it depends. In, in fact, I suspect the vast majority of people who give to organisations like uh, Oxfam, World Vision and so on do so without any thought of attaching strings. Mm. <laughs> when it comes to universities, there has been a tendency for some uh, philanthropists um, uh, to want, if you like, something non-material for their money, maybe the naming rights for a building or a a named chair, for example, a a professorship. But one of the really significant issues here from a policy point of view is what kinds of strings and how many strings is it legitimate to attach to a philanthropic gift before that gift ceases to be a gift and, and becomes a fee for service. There's one thing that New Zealand legislation or now regulations lacks in relation to definitions around gifts uh, that applies in the United States, for example, and, and that's what's called the complete gift rule or the completed gift rule. And that rule stipulates that for a charitable gift to qualify as tax deductible to tax deductible in the United States, the donor must relinquish control irrevocably over the gift and trust that the institution will follow the stipulations in the gift agreement, whatever those stipulations might be. And why is that rule stipulated? Well, it's to overcome this problem that sometimes donors want to continue to exercise control <laughs> over mm. how the gift is used. Now, now we don't have that rule uh, in New Zealand. And in my view, we need to have clarity in this area, because otherwise there is this risk that uh, philanthropists can then impose all manner of strings. <laughs> so, Nick, what about philanthropy? I mean... The, it's it's a sort of, it seems to be quite a tricky area in New Zealand, and I, I've been given some figures which show that, um, you know, endowments to universities here are, are tiny compared with other parts of the world. Do you see yourself needing to raise more money through philanthropy? Um, I think we continue to work hard in that space, but you're right, in New Zealand there isn't the culture or the history of philanthropic support, there is particularly in North America, but also in Europe and the UK as well. Um, a lot of those universities are, are very old universities which have built a philanthropic base which goes for hundreds, in some cases almost thousands of years, and that allows them to be both autonomous and sustainable on that basis alone, partly because of that culture, but also the difficulty with philanthropy is more often than not um, donors want to give to fairly specific causes and they have particular interests which they're looking to pursue and while that often fits and, and means we can do amazing things with that, it's, it's not the core funding that allows an institution to sustain itself uh, for its core purpose. Um, and in very rare circumstances does that happen. So uh, it's, it's an enormously added value. 
um, but it's probably not going to be the thing I think in the near term which is going to uh, help us address this this issue. I understand currently the university's endowment is around about eighty five million. Yep, that's, that sounds about right. You, you're not going to you know make make a heck of a lot more effort to try and boost that. Um, it's not really an either or. I mean, we're, we're making efforts to boost every opportunity we have mm. for, for funding, as you could imagine. And we have a very loyal uh, and committed base of alumni who've already reached out to me and, and asked me how they can help. But to produce uh, you know, $33 million a year from philanthropic funding, given that it's taken us the history of the university to build up the current endowment to 85, I think is probably unrealistic and um, I'm not planning that as our uh, major strategy for addressing this going forward. When you say that Vic is going to be smaller, have you got a figure on the numbers, how many students you'll have compared with now and how many staff? Yeah, we're looking at these current rounds of cost savings of the figure of about 250 full-time equivalent staff less than we currently have at the moment, which is about 13 to 14% of our staff cohort. In terms of students, um, I think we have the capacity to, to hold our current student numbers, which are about 20,000. And you know, at that level, the university will be an incredibly strong one and one that actually has an enormous amount to offer. It will just be one that is less diverse. So if you make cuts in a certain area, you've made a decision about something, it's hard to then rebuild it, isn't it? Yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, you can cut very quickly, but it takes generations to build that capability back. And so, you know, universities, as autonomous institutions, which are apolitical with the best interests of the communities they serve, have made those decisions. But as the finances have steadily decreased, our ability to do to actually uh, do that and, and do nothing more than correspond and respond to fairly blunt market signals for which government gives funding for specific courses is hugely reduced. And Western society has flourished for the last 300 years on institutions investing in their capability in research, investing in their young people, investing in skills that are going to transcend any particular technological age, rationalising complexity, uh, navigating uncertainty, communicating to diverse audiences. And the fact that we might lose some of that capability, I think, is a real worry. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett Kelly. The detail is supported by the Public Interest Journalism Fund. Flo Wilson engineered this podcast. Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison produced it. And thanks to Nick Smith and Jonathan Boston. Mā te wā.